The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by support from listeners like you. You can learn about how to contribute via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 145 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Akiko Bush. She writes about design, culture, and nature for a variety of publications. She was a contributing editor at Metropolis Magazine for 20 years, and her essays have appeared in numerous national magazines, newspapers, and exhibition catalogs. Currently, she is on the faculty of the MA Design Research Program at the School of Visual Arts, and she is a visiting teacher at Bennington College, where she teaches environmental writing. Her most recent book, How to Disappear, came out in 2019. She's also the author of The Incidental Steward, Geography of Home, Writings on Where We Live, The Uncommon Life of Common Objects, Essays on Design in the Everyday, and Nine Ways to Cross a River, Midstream Reflections on Swimming and Getting There from Here. She lives in the Hudson Valley and makes it a point to swim across the Hudson River once a year. I knew I wanted to have a Kiko as soon as I found out about how to disappear. I think one of the biggest challenges we face as writers is balancing the need to be visible as well as the need to step away from visibility. There's so much pressure nowadays to have a public face, to share much more of our lives, to be more vulnerable to the public eye. And at the same time, Writing is difficult to do when you're focused on the outside world. You have to step away. You have to spend time alone. You have to reflect on what's happening internally. So it was an honor and a privilege to speak to Akiko about what she discovered in writing How to Disappear, both the topics that she found as well as the process of writing about disappearance itself. I think you're going to love hearing from her as much as I did. Hi, Akiko. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I think well, as soon I was hooked, as soon as I saw the title, of course, um, because thinking about the process of needing to disappear as a writer and also the sort of change that we've seen in what it means to be a writer and how we have to promote ourselves is a topic I think is on many people's minds, but there's also the aspect of people who are sort of disappeared and aren't allowed to appear in the first place. And and so this concept mm-hmm. of wanting to disappear, but also just the control that people want to have over visibility, whether they choose to be seen or not, or all of those things are such complicated topics. And so I was eager to talk about both how you researched the book and created the book, but also the subject itself and how it has impacted you as a writer of many books and essays. Oh, okay, there's there's a lot there. I'm not there's sure a lot there. exactly where to start. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. I think maybe I'll start at the beginning. What drew you to the topic of disappearing? What was the initial impulse to write about the book? And what did you learn as you were diving in? Because you cover many areas, not just kind of public life, but also the ways it impacts nature and and you go through the wide gamut. So what drew you into the concept of disappearing first? Well, okay, let's see, start at the beginning. Um, 
We all live to see and be seen. Um, We know this. Being seen, being recognized, being acknowledged is vital to human experience. Social visibility is vital to our happiness, to our sense of ourselves, and 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 when it diminishes, we suffer. Um, the the gaze is vital to human connection and interaction. The Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter have the power they do today, because it's their aim to put populations often unseen and unrecognized back into social and political visibility. We all need to see each other. This is the given. This is this is the default position from from whence we start. But it seemed to me that at the same time, um, you know, I, I kind of have this conviction about the imperative to go unseen, to be inconspicuous, um, to be invisible, that, you know, that these are just as critical. And I think this is something that we've tended to lose sight of, as it were, um, Mm. today in an age of transparency when, you know, in this kind of increasingly visual culture, social media and surveillance economy tend to to put a kind of disproportionately high value on public identity. So I wanted to... um, I wanted to look at very various iterations of remaining unseen as a positive experience. Um, I wanted to look at various um, various parts of human experience in which being unseen and unnoticed and unrecognized uh, were were could be an advantage, could do you good, could do good to this human psyche. So that's that's kind of where I began, and I began. You know, the obvious place to begin is in the natural world where camouflage and and remaining hidden and remaining out of sight can be, um, um, you know, a a circumstance of great power and even survival. But then, you know, beyond that, I mean, obviously, I I wanted to go beyond that. But, um, yeah, that is where I started. I think it's really fascinating because there is... This lack of agency, I think so many people feel with whether or not they are seen. And in some ways, that was what struck me going through the book, that that we as writers used to, there was a reputation of being a writer, that you would get to go and hide and be left alone. And now right. there's this different relationship to it where you're expected to have a giant following and you're expected to have this huge presence in order to justify getting a book published or your writing being there. And that didn't used to be the case with the world of writing. Well, I'm, I mean, I think what you're saying is really true, but I think that's kind of an assumption that maybe isn't quite as true as, as we may think it is. I mean, um, yeah, I think I, I, I think for some writers, the idea that you have to have X number of Instagram followers is important. And certainly your publisher and marketing director might be very, very happy if you you know, have hundreds and thousands of Instagram followers. That's going to help you sell your book. But I think the assumption that that is what writers must do is a little faulty. Um, yeah, I just, I just don't think we all have to buy into that, I guess, is what I'm I hope saying. not. I'm grateful to hear that we wouldn't. And I think that in what you're talking about, that it's just as important to go unseen and to be able to observe without putting yeah. oneself in the spotlight. Yeah, yeah. I just, 
you know, I, I think we live in a time when our kind of visual presence is so important, whether you're talking about social media or the surveillance economy. But, you know, it just seems like how we um, define ourselves in the public realm is increasingly important to our ideas of ourselves and how we kind of form these ideas we have of ourselves. But, um, you know, I think you can step back from that and, and realize that maybe um, – you know, all is not lost if you step back. And if you don't have that kind of really super visible public identity, um, it's okay. It's not really damaging. And in fact, it can be um, quite sustaining. Yes. So how was your relationship to being visible versus invisible changed by the process of writing this book? Interesting. How did it change? Um, I'm not sure it changed a lot. I, I live in the country. I live in a very rural area. I have a you know little office kind of tucked away at the top of our hill at the edge of the woods. And that's, that's where I do my work. Um, for a long time, I didn't have an internet connection up here. So, of course, that became impossible once... Um, you know, I mean, when I'm doing any kind of research, obviously, you, you know, you need to go online. So I eventually did get um, a, a Wi-Fi connection. And, um, you know, I'm thinking I sometimes think of going back, you know, there's something I think about. Well, maybe it depends on what kind of writing you do. But um, I think that there are times when I wish I could be up here in my office and not have that constant distraction because, uh, you know, like, like so many people, I'm, I'm susceptible, you know, I'm checking the news and I'm checking the email and I'm, you know, if, if, if I find an interesting bit of research, I, I go down that rabbit hole and suddenly it's 20 minutes later and I kind of wonder, um, you know, what it would be like to go back where I wasn't so, um, so connected where, you know, would it be, and, and please, please understand, I'm not advocating disconnection. I'm not mm. advocating going off and being, um, you know, disconnecting from the world outside. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all, because I think, you know, as I began by saying, you know, being seen and seeing one another and having this, this human connection is, is vital to all of us. But in terms of work, there are times when I think, yeah, maybe – um, maybe I don't need that internet connection up here, you know, maybe, maybe my writing, maybe the way, not my writing, but my thinking would be more enhanced, would be less distracted, um, if I didn't have that connection up here, but I have not yet taken that leap. So, um, it's, it's at the moment, it's kind of wishful thinking. Yeah. I think it's the, always this tension. Like we have these tastes of it. Um, I remember spending time in Big Sur where there is notoriously very bad service and, you can only at the time that I went and was working on a little bit of writing, you could you could go to the Henry Miller Library and like use their unbelievably slow internet connection if you needed <laughs> to get in touch. And the level of depth I got out of reading and the thinking that I got in that period of time has also made me think, what if there was like a period of time during the day when the internet just didn't work and then you could work on other things? I think these thought experiments are interesting to say, you know, how would this change my work life? How would this change if I was able to disappear for periods of time, either every oh, day or every yeah. week? 
Absolutely, I think we. I think we probably all share that. Um, you know, all of all of us, us inhabitants of the of the digital age. Of when you go to a place where there's slow service or no service, you're kind of inconvenienced for the first seven minutes, and then it's like, oh, this just feels great. You know. So um, yeah, I think that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So as you expanded out from nature and then looked into this experience of invisibility in your life and in your family's life and and spreading out over the world, what were some experiences that really struck you um, most profoundly? Well, um, I, I probably because I grew up in a really beautiful place, which is New York's Hudson Valley. Um, it's a really beautiful wooded area close to the river. Um, I'm, I'm very, you know, kind of connected to the landscape and the geography of where I live. And so for a long time, my writing um, was really place-based. I mean, if I want... I would often use landscape or geography as a way to enter an idea or to or to talk about something. It wasn't that I was necessarily writing about landscape, but it was kind of my entry point into a more abstract idea. Um, and that kind of writing, place-based writing, has always been um, something really important to me and something that's um, that I really love doing. So even when I'm thinking about an abstract idea, um, if I can come at it through place, that's that's what really works. So when I knew that I was going to be writing this kind of book, you know, multiple chapters and many ideas and coming at it from, from different directions, I knew that um, if I, in areas where I could, writing about place would be really important. So in this book, there are a couple of chapters that are really rooted in place. And one of those is about Iceland, a trip I took to Iceland, which I knew from the very beginning I wanted to do. Um, in Iceland, there is a kind of um, ancient belief in something called the Holdefolk, which is a um, an entire hidden population, a population of invisible people. Um, and the Holdefolk are... Um, they're they're human beings. They're just not seen, and they're like us. Only they're a little bit better, you know. So they're a little bit more attractive <laughs> than we are. They look a little bit nicer. Their horses have sleeker coats and run faster. Their cows give richer milk and cream. I mean, it's this really wonderful concept of sort of, you know, our better selves. Um, but they're unseen, and there's this kind of acceptance of you know, this unseen population that's kind of, you know, just kind of living around the corner. So I was really fascinated by that. I was really interested in what it's like to go through life, you know, thinking about this parallel population that you just don't see. So that was one of one of one of my um, favorite parts of the research was going to Iceland and looking at the landscape. You know, this fantastic landscape of, you know, of kind of lunar rocks and moss and lava fields and you know, whole huge black lava fields planted with um, the purple lupin. I mean, just just these fantastically beautiful landscapes um, that were that were nothing like I'd ever seen and that were apparently inhabited by this invisible population. So, so that was, um, that was uh, a trip I, I really loved. Another, another part of the research I did was uh, I had never been scuba diving mm. and I have a good friend who's a biologist. Yeah. She's a biologist and she researches coral 
um, she's re researching coral reefs off the um, Grand Cayman Islands. So she invited me to go down because she talked really beautifully, really articulately about what it is to be underwater. And it's where she's doing really her most important work and her most important research. But she talks about, um, you know, kind of losing her sense of material self and, um, you know, swimming down there, being submerged and being completely invisible and unnoticed by the, um, you know, the sort of neon residents of that um, aquatic bazaar, you know, all those beautiful bright fish and invertebrates that, and you just kind of are in that world and they're, they're oblivious to you and, and you're not paying too much attention to them. And it's just, you know, it's a kind of um, an absorption by place that's not possible above the surface of the water, right? I mean, if you're walking in the woods, I mean, the animals are aware of you, you're aware of them, but underwater, the whole, that whole equation really changes. Changes. So I was interested in that. I mean, she talks about doing her best work when she's feeling invisible. So that was really fascinating to me. So those those two um, trips I took, um, one to Iceland and then the other one to go scuba diving. Um, you know, those those I kind of saw as being the kind of place based writing that I just that I really love to do. Um, but there were other areas of the book that were you know, that were much more abstract, where I couldn't kind of um, fix the ideas to place. And so, and those were really important. I mean, I had to really confront those ideas and, um, you know, kind of, kind of just deal with them. But, uh, I, you know, I, did, I didn't have the geography to kind of use as an entryway. Um, so there was... Um, Another one, another, I was talking about the invisibility that women sometimes sometimes feel as they grow older. Mm -hmm. And that led me to reread Mrs. Dalloway mm -hmm. because, you know, Mrs. Dalloway begins with this beautiful section where Cl Clarissa Dalloway is walking down this London street, unnoticed, unseen, unobserved. And she talks about how women, especially, you know, women, when you're beyond childbearing, um, you're you're only known by your husband's name. You're not seen. You're identified by your gloves or you know by your hat or by something you're wearing, but that you're not really seen. And then she talks about um, you know how that. I mean, she's feeling she's she's feeling a little bit um, you know she's not feeling really great about that. But then she realizes that. She's able at her age to feel this greater empathy with the people around her, and she's feeling in an odd way kind of more socially connected, more affiliated. And it's a really beautiful kind of meditation. So um, that that section of the book was really just really deeply rereading Virginia Woolf, right? Mm. So that was, um, that was a completely different kind of research, but that was... Um, you know, just as satisfying in its own way. So, yeah, so, the, so you know, the different ways I researched this book really varied from, from rereading to, you know, to traveling to unexpected places. I think that seems like the most satisfying kind of book to write in that you're not just doing one thing and you're not just reading one kind of thing. And I think that's one of the beautiful ideas of taking a slightly more abstract idea and thinking about, okay, how am I going to find situations that articulate this more concretely? 
Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, and that's, I, I think for people who write nonfiction, that it's really important to, to, to know that. I mean, I think most people who write nonfiction do know that, but if, if you, you know, if you're, if you haven't written nonfiction, you're thinking about it. I think it's really important to remember that. I mean, and this is something I, I try to talk to my students about, which is that writing, and especially in nonfiction, but writing is a really associative process. I mean, it's for me, it's really important to sit down and have some idea of what I'm saying, some structure, some sense of an outline, some sense of where I'm going with an idea. But at the same time, there's something that happens when you sit down and start to write, whether it's longhand or at a keyboard. Um, there's something in that associative process. There's something in the um, kind of, you know, hand-brain connection, and I don't know what it is. It's it's almost ineffable, but there's something that happens, and when you start to write, your mind goes in really unexpected directions, and, and that's when... Um, you know, digressions are really important. You just, you're writing something and you just find yourself going someplace you hadn't thought you were going to go. And I think paying attention to that is, um, is really important. I mean, it can be really sustaining and really, um, you know, not to get too dramatic, but, you know, really kind of empowering to find yourself going in a completely unexpected direction. I think, um, I just think that that's one of those weird things that, happens to the human imagination when you're writing is it's just these unexpected turns and i think it's um yeah i think it's important to respect that and to follow it i think it's essential i think you're absolutely right and i think yeah having this idea so you had this initial impulse about okay well maybe being invisible can be a powerful and positive experience how many ideas did you have like the trip to iceland or potentially scuba diving or other areas in nature and so on that were you maybe had early on but how many did you find like you're saying that as you started to write about the experiences that you had there were all of these other associations that came up well, uh, yeah, okay, so a couple of things about that. Um, and the first is, um, and I don't know, I think this ha happens to other nonfiction writers, um, but especially in a book like, like this where it's really kind of an abstract idea that you're trying to structure and organize and, you know, where am I going to put this piece of information and where am I going to put, you know, that experience um, there was a huge, um, it was a problem for me to know when to begin, you know, because it's not like you sit down and do the research and say, oh, okay, now I'm done with the research. Now I'm going to write. I mean, you're kind of writing and putting ideas together and you're kind of doing your research and, but you don't know, or it was hard for me to know exactly when to sit down and start to write the book. And I think a mistake early on that I made was starting to write it a little bit too soon mm. because I was so excited by some of the things I was finding and, you know, some of the ideas and kind of once I started to think about this, you know, what was out there that, um, you know, as a writer, that's, that's the reward. That's what you want to do is you want to start, you want to sit down and start writing, putting all this together. And I did that, um, a little bit too soon. So I'd written this one chapter early on that I later just had to take apart completely and, and kind of, you know, take it apart and put different sections in, in other different chapters because it was just, you know, way, there were way too many ideas and there weren't too, they weren't really connecting. And it just, I, the, 
the right things were there, but they were all in the wrong place. Mm. So that was one thing was, was beginning too soon. But then the other thing, another thing was, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I went to Iceland and I, I, I went diving in the Cayman Islands and I read Mrs. Dalloway and, you know, I was, it was, the book was kind of coming together. And then I realized that, um, I was really missing the piece, which was, uh, and this was sort of as I was yeah, kind of, kind of midway through or kind of thinking about where I was going to end up with this book. And I realized that I was missing the whole, um, a, a section about neuroscience and mm. those, uh, the way the, because I was very interested in, in the way um, the brain and body can sometimes detach from one another. You know, right. I mean, there are all these, there's a lot of technology, you, you know, you put on the virtual reality gloss glasses or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, you have this experience, this kind of disembodied experience. And I thought that that was important to the conversation about invisibility. But then I realized when that happens involuntarily, um, you know, there are certain kinds of, um, you know, um, disorders, strokes, right. um, dementia, Alzheimer's, there are different, there are different, um, um, brain disorders in which that happens involuntarily and cause great suffering and great sadness. And, you know, so what does that mean? You know, I mean, I felt that in my, um, you know, my kind of infatuation, my love affair with invisibility, I wasn't really paying close enough attention to um, those experiences in which people tend to disappear because of some kind of neurological disorder. So I, I felt that I had to look at that. And um, luckily, fortunately, I was able to um, find um, some neuroscientists who were, you know, willing to speak to me really as a non-scientist and kind of talk me through some of these ideas in ways that I could really understand. So that was that was an area that I hadn't really expected to encounter, but that um, I ended up being really important. Yes, definitely. I think there's a way that this book yeah. feels a little bit like a quilt to me, like that there were patches yeah. and then certain colors, you know, they come back in different themes and you see them connect in different ways. And I can, when you said that you had all the right pieces, but they were in the wrong places, I had this image of you taking quilt patches and kind of reorganizing them so that the pattern came together. Oh, that's exactly what I had to do, certainly with that first chapter. And it's nice to see you say the pattern came together because I was just never quite sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, there were there were parts of that very first chapter I wrote that I ended up you know, using in the last chapter of the book. So um, yeah, I, I knew from the beginning, I did know from the beginning that the experience of wonder and awe was going to be part of this book. I mean, I had done enough reading and enough thinking about this to know that where I was probably going to end up um, at the end of the book was with this idea of the small self and that when people, um, when your identity is diminished, when you feel small, um, as, as in the experience of wonder and, and awe, then, um, you know, you're, you're kind of... Um, your kind of social consciousness grows. You know, you start to see yourself as part of a collective. You start to see yourself as part of a human community. And I felt that that was, um, I, felt, I felt that that was a really important point. And I was pretty sure that's where I was going to end up with this book. And I did, that is in fact where I ended up. 
But when I began to write the book at the very beginning, you know, I kind of used some of those ideas at the beginning. And I said, you know, I, I ultimately realized, no, 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 you want to get to this much more slowly. You don't want to throw this idea out at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You said uh, something I find fascinating a moment ago, which is that you feel that you started writing too soon. And for those listening, I wonder people who are writing in nonfiction, also, I think there may be a danger as well that you can become so enraptured with researching all of the ideas that be connected to an idea that it would also be possible to start writing too late. So how did you know when it was the right time to start writing? When did it feel like, okay, I'm actually yeah, in the right place now? Oh, boy, I don't know. That's really a good <laughs> question. Um, for Yeah, I mean, these these books, these projects, you know, kind of, it's so easy for them to take on a kind of timeline of their own, you know, that you sort of have to, you have to respect. Um, I think, yeah, I think for me, it was just, and I would suspect for most writers that, you know, that temptation to jump in because you, you just feel like you, you found so much wonderful material that tend, that kind of impulse to jump in and start is, um, you know, is what is what can sort of be your undoing. Um, mm. And then, yeah, then you sort of step back and say, no, 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 this is too soon. And um, then maybe you wait too long on the other end. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly when you know the right, when you know what the right time is. Um, I, I, but I guess if you just kind of start at a certain point and you, and you're kind of working with a sense of measure. Maybe that's it. You're just working with a sense of measure and not, you know, kind of piling all the, you know, all the ideas you love so much kind of up front. You know, you're kind of, you're kind of laying them out with a sense of order and discrimination. Then, then I think maybe, maybe that's the right time to do it. But, but I'm not sure how you know when that time is. I guess there's just some, some kind of intuitive sense you have to acquire, you have to get as a writer or as, or as anyone who's doing something, you know, vaguely creative that you just have to, you know, kind of respect your subject matter enough to know how to, um, you know, deal with it in the right way. Yes. I think so. I think this is one of those questions where I think we learn by pondering it, but there's never a definitive answer. It's like, oh, that's the million dollar question. If everybody knew when yeah. is the exact right yeah. time to start a project, then we would all do it. Yeah. Yeah. You you just you just have to figure it out. There there's no firm, right, clear answer written in stone for sure. Well, I think this is one of the things too about finding, you know, larger topics, which you're clearly not afraid of. And that, oh, 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 wait a minute. I'm, I'm really afraid of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, some people take a topic of like, okay, one day in this year, you know, and then, but then that's equally terrifying because then you can find every single thing about that period or a year, but to take something like how to disappear is, is in some cases you could go as large as you wanted or, you know, geography of home you wrote about or other things that you've written that, that could also, you know, how do you prevent it from ballooning so large that you never feel like you've fully covered it, which I think would be well, a I risk. Think, 
Yeah. No, I think in in something like this, the given is that you're never going to say everything there is to say. I mean, you just can't. Um, I mean, invisibility, how to disappear. I mean, you know, you could write thousands of words every day for your whole life and probably not cover it. So I think you just have to say, I'm going to... I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it as best I can. I'm gonna I'm gonna find enough examples that are different enough from each other to kind of make this interesting. And I mean I mean for me, um, you know, writing about this in this book, I was just trying to land on, you know, a number of different ways of being. Right? It wasn't it wasn't about sort of invisibility and technology, although there was some of that. But just I was more interested in different ways of just kind of being in this world and not being seen. And so whether I showed six of those or 12 of those or 20 of those, that's what I wanted to do because, of course, there are at least 200,000 of those, you know, Mm -hmm. so I just wanted to just talk about a handful of them. But in the first draft, I did have a kind of longer section about um, how different spiritual faiths look at invisibility. Mm-hmm. So I was I was talking about um, you know the Christian faith and the Jewish faith and Buddhism, and I was kind of talking about that, and I just felt that. You know, one part of me felt like, how can you possibly write a book about invisibility and not talk about spiritual faith and how different religions, you know, look at this and consider this and kind of um, absorb it into practice? Um, And but I just I just felt and and my editor ended up agreeing immediately was like, this is too big. You know, Mm. this is just way too much. This is too big. You can't talk about human religion in eight pages or, (laughs) you know, 20. I mean, you know, you could do a whole book on this. You can't you can't just touch on this. And, and so we just cut that. And, and she was really right. I mean, I, I did, you know, I had these pages there, but it just, it just felt like, um, you know, it just wasn't enough. Um, and, and her suggestion that we cut that was, was absolutely right. And I think I ended up just saying something like, you know, the, the, the unseen self, or the experience of being unseen is essential to human metaphysical inquiry, which it is. And I kind of left it at that just because, you know, all, all spiritual faith does, does look at that, but, um, you know, beginning to catalog that was just, um, you know, it was just too much. Yeah. You can see volumes and volumes growing off of the original idea. and yeah, and I mean, I hope that was the right decision. I don't know. I mean, there there probably are going to be people who look at this book and say, well, you know, how is it possible that the author didn't, you know, didn't talk about this? But anyway, that's that's why the author didn't talk about it. It was just it was too much. <laughs> well, I so, think you have yeah. a, a a helpful subtitle, you know, notes on invisibility, not the definitive argument on invisibility in a time of transparency. Yeah, that's that's, that's kind of. Um, that's that kind of let me get away with it, right? Or I guess I'm hoping it let me get away with it because, you know, what can you possibly do in, in 240 pages other, you know, on a subject like invisibility than, than provide notes, right? I mean, that's really the most you can do. So yeah, that's why that's, that's why that subtitle is there. I think it serves in a way as an important antidote to there's so much noise that I see everywhere written about, like how you can get more seen, how you can get, you know, more eyeballs on your writing and all of this. I mean, we're 
reduced to talking about eyeballs, it seems. And to think about well, actually, you know, what if, the, what if it's okay? And to honor and acknowledge the fact that some people feel exhausted by trying to make their breakfasts look attractive or all of these things that we, we do know, um, that maybe you'll see more by, by trying not to be seen so much. Well, I think, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, kind of the way I see it is that um, I'm not um, I'm not promoting myself or promoting personal identity, but really what I'm trying to do here is advance an idea. And I think there's um, kind of a difference between those two things. So, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that. Um, you know, when, when I, when I talk to you or when I do a reading that I'm, you know, it's all about social visibility is, um, well, it's just not the way I see it, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's about bringing both sides of a conversation to, yeah to the fore. And I think that it feels to me like recently this side of the conversation has not gotten as much attention, at least certainly not as much as it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think also it's kind of, it, it, maybe it depends a little bit on, on what you're writing about and who you're writing for. I mean, you know, I think there are a lot of, um, I mean, I, yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people talk about the number of eyeballs and, you know, the number of Instagram followers they have, but I think, you know, I think there are other kind of spheres of writing, um, where, where maybe that's, there's a little less emphasis put on that. Um, and Maybe I'm just trying to return the process or return the possibility, um, return to the possibility of doing it in a more um, quieter and more private way. Yes, I think it's I think it's essential. There was a, a lovely image you had early on in the book of a plant that your husband got you that <laughs> looked like a stone, which I loved, <laughs> and that. The, the features that yeah. you enjoyed about this plant were that it grew very slowly, sometimes without being able to notice it, and that it didn't even really look like a plant at all, and that he immediately knew <laughs> that it would appeal to you, which I loved. Yeah, I'm a terrible gardener. I live in the country, and you know, I have many friends who have beautiful gardens, and my husband's a gardener, and you know, all of this, and it's it's lovely. I'm I'm very lucky to have these people in my life, but I'm a terrible gardener. And anything you, I mean, ask me to water your plants, and you know, they'll die immediately. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I had this. He, get, my husband, gave me this thing that's um, called a stone plant because it looks like a little cluster of stones. And uh, it made me very, very happy because it didn't it didn't grow and it didn't change color and it didn't blossom and it didn't bloom. And, um, you know, for me, the idea of a plant that tried to present itself as a stone was just there was something so, um, you know, there was just something so admirable about that, that it, it I just kind of grew to love this plant. But yeah, so that, you know, that little image of camouflage was really interesting to me um, that a plant could look like something that wasn't a plant so yeah having that on my windowsill while I was working on this book was you know constant um constant support and reassurance my little stone plant well it struck me that the image of that plant it made me so happy because in some cases it's the perfect metaphor for the writing process where you can't 
necessarily see that there's any growth happening. And it <laughs> appears that nothing is changing and that there's nothing moving forward. And yet it is alive. It is alive in there. And it's taking its own time to get where it needs to go. That's very funny. That's true. I hadn't thought of it as a metaphor for the writing process, but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, this this little rock that's actually a plant. Yeah, no, that's great for, for writing. Definitely. So if someone is wanting to take on, if someone listening is wanting to take on a more abstract topic, what would you advise them to do if, if there's anything that you found helpful to tackle a topic like invisibility? What would you, what advice would one you of, give them to start with? Yeah. Well, one of the things that amazed me when I, when I got to the end of this book was how many incredible visual images there were. I mean, not just in the natural world, for example, but just um, in art and in film and in literature, just it, it oddly for this subject, there were so many beautiful visual images. Um, a, a, a Chinese photographer who, um, you know, photograph, you know, has some, um, Lou Bolin, who, who paints, paints himself camouflage to blend into whatever background is behind him, whether it's, it's a, it's a grocery store or a library or a wooded, you know, somewhere in nature. Um, so that was, and, and, he, and he's just painted to just kind of recede into this background and you can just, you know, make out his figure or another, um, another Chinese artist who, um, who photographs uh, bicyclists in the streets of Shanghai. And then he somehow digitally removes the bicycles. So they're still kind of going down the street, but, but, you know, their, their bicycles are gone. Um, um, David Bowie walking down the street, you know, sort of undisguised, just, you know, wearing cargo shorts and, and somebody photographs him. Um, and he just looks like just, you know, some normal guy, some passerby on the street. I mean, there were so many, you know, and, and just sort of was an example of, of just passing through the world unseen, even though you're a celebrity. I mean, so there were so many visual images in this book. Um, so I think at least for me, when I'm trying to write about an abstract idea, is it's really important to have something visual to kind of um, to, to kind of um, to kind of fasten onto and to kind of be able to um, represent or your, reflect your ideas um, to your reader in a way that they can kind of visually grasp the idea you're trying to express or trying to talk about, because I think. Otherwise, or at least for me, that kind of abstract writing without those visual elements becomes very dry and very, um, I don't know, just I'm not able to pull that off, that kind of abstract writing without the visual elements. So I think, um, yeah, I think I think that's what I would say. I mean, my first couple of books were more um, explicitly about design. The first one, Geography of Home, was about rooms, you know, so I would go into different rooms of the house, and then that was the way I would sort of talk about these ideas of domesticity or comfort or privacy or security or whatever it was I was talking about. Um, and then my second book, The Uncommon Life of Common Objects, it was the same thing. I was just talking about, you know, um, cameras and refrigerators and strollers and cereal boxes. And, you know, these objects became, um, you know, kind of the entry to, you know, think about, you know, 
what we value as consumers and and you know how we raise our children and how people apologize to each other and all these kind of other ideas that you wouldn't ordinarily attach to these things but you know so i think i'm just saying that for me when i'm talking about a more abstract idea some kind of concrete material image or a place is is kind of the way um, I get there. I think that makes perfect sense. And I think I can see it helping both the writer and the reader in, um, yeah, in finding understanding. So. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the objective anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so grateful you were able to come on and talk to us more about your wonderful book, which I know everyone will enjoy. Thank you so much, Akiko. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I hope I hope this was helpful. I hope it made sense. Um, it's it's odd and strange and sometimes difficult to try to talk about the process, but it's really it's been rewarding. So thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.